Well, hello for this August 17th Monday morning Bleeding Edge update from What's Up Doc. I'm so glad that you've chosen today to join us. A wise decision, my friend. Let me close the vault here to the cave for some privacy on this one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my underground lair. I want to do a quick update today on our local and regional numbers, so let's get started and we'll get through this quickly. I have some interesting perspectives and some new statistics that might give you some greater reassurance about your actual personal risk of getting coronavirus or having some complication or tragedy from that. So in Stone County, we have a total of 84 cases. We have 24 active cases with 59 recovered. We've had no new deaths over the last month and and five cases over the last 24 hours. Izzard, Baxter, Fulton counties have had zero new cases over the last 24 hours, and their rates are all improving with the last two weeks decreasing compared to the entire pandemic. Sharp County has had two new cases in the last 24 hours, but they are still at only about 20% of their total pandemic cases over the last two weeks with now only 19 active cases out of the 127 that they had. Independence is having some good news with their last two weeks now having only 41% of their total pandemic cases, and they now have 439 cases recovered, which is significantly improved. So now in our region, we're down to 36% of our total pandemic cases over these two weeks for the entire five-month span. But we did cross in our six-county region over 1,000 cases. You might want to know, what is the actual risk for you? If you look at the population statistics on the age groups that the CDC looks at, you'll see that those age groups break down to the zero to four year of age group, and they sometimes break out neonates below one year of age. Five to 14 year olds, 15 to 24, and then nine year increments from there on upward, starting at 15, 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, and 75 in grouping all people over 85 years old together. For example, in our country, we have 22 million 0 to 4-year-olds. We have 44 million 25 to 34-year-olds. We have 42 million 55 to 64-year-olds, but only 6 million people over the age of 85. Now, if you look at all causes of death, or basically the risk of dying in any one year, from any disease, you see a significant decrease in COVID relative to that. So, for example, if you take the 15 to 24-year age group, we have 39 million people in the uh, that 10-year age group. And in the last year, 17,000 died. But in this five-month pandemic, we've only lost 242 people in the entire country, which leaves us with a COVID death rate in that population of 1 in 1,500,000. If you extrapolate that to the rate of death for any one age group in the whole, that increases approximately tenfold. So if you look at a 15 to 24-year-old, their chance of dying from COVID as a percentage of the population is actually only 1 in 15 million. You will notice that uh, we have a much higher rate for newborns for different reasons. They die uh, still only one uh, in a million of their age group or one in 10 million total. But that decreases to one in 20 million in the 5 to 14 year age group and only one in 15 million from COVID, that is, uh, in the 15 to 24 age group. 
Now, if you want to take the ratios of any one age group, uh, any 10-year age group, except for those that are preschoolers, and you look at the chance of dying from COVID in the United States, I'm going to make some comparisons for you today, and I'm going to share about uh, three of these over the next four, four episodes. So for a, a neonate, the chance of dying overall from COVID is 1 in 10 million of the population. The statistics that I've looked at today from three various sources that are all pretty consistent are related to chances of dying from everyday causes. The chance of a zero to four-year-old dying of COVID, therefore, is one in 10 million, which is about the same chance as driving your car 20 miles, walking two miles, or just the act of getting out of bed. If you look at the 35 to 44-year-old age range, which is a very large part of our population at 42 million, we lost 50,210 people in 2019 to 2020 from all causes. We've lost 2,920 to COVID over this five-month period. The chance in the population group of dying of COVID is 1 in 15,000 of that age group, but in the total, it's 1 in 150,000. To give you a comparison, the chance of being struck by lightning and dying is 1 in 115,000. It's the same rate about as dying from running a marathon or the chance of dying from riding a cycle. Lastly, just for comparison, if you look at the eldest age group at 85 plus, we lose approximately 500,000 people out of their 6 million annually, and they have a risk of dying of somewhere around 12% a year, uh, 10 to 12%. Uh, they have a 1 in 7 chance of dying annually. We've lost 47,712 in that age group so far to COVID, and that's going to be a significant contribution, but still within their age group. The chance of dying from coronavirus over 85 is only 1 in 125 of all the people their age in the United States and 1 in 1,250 of the total population. By way of comparison, the chance of dying from drowning each year is 1 in 1,000 and the chance of dying in a pedestrian or motorcycle accident is 1 in 500 to 1 in 1,000. And it's 1 in 106 that someone will die by a car accident of any type or one in a hundred of dying from an opioid overdose. My point in bringing these in, this information and these numbers up is I see such a terrible fear of normal activities, having just reported that we're beginning to lose more people in our region from the fear of going to get health care and dying at home from illnesses that could have been treated, than we are actually seeing die from COVID. So ask yourself the question, do you stop with a child and think, well, I have more of a chance of someone dying in this car from driving 20 miles, say, from here to Batesville, a similar distance? Or do you think that when you get out and walk for two miles or just get out of bed in the morning? Because that is literally about the risk that you run of dying from COVID as a child. You adults that are 35 to 44, so many in that age group are scared of this uh, as a generation but you see that the same rate of death in their age group as a whole is that of riding a bicycle. But I don't see anyone who's afraid to go out and ride a cycle because of COVID. At 85 or above, those folks have less of a chance of dying as they would if they went swimming or 
even within their age group, less of a chance than getting into their car. But I don't see many elders afraid to get in their car to drive somewhere, worried, and they tend to worry more about wherever they're going, getting COVID and having a tragedy, than just the act of getting in an automobile. So once again, I see very, very little perspective in this. But I appreciate you giving attention. I know some of that might feel almost a little bit painful. But if you'll think about this, it might give you some perspective and some courage that if you're not afraid to get in a car or go for a walk or ride a cycle, you shouldn't be afraid to go out and live your life as long as you take proper precautions. Thank you. And beautiful. Now on to the cutting-edge research. So just a summary. We're doing well in our region now, making a turn for the better, but we need to keep going in the right direction, especially before school starts. So a quick rundown of the cutting-edge research over the last uh, 5 to 50 hours. We've seen an uh, interesting outbreak in Hawaii, and I've mentioned to you that island nations that have been very tightly controlled or locked down or had very tightly controlled socialist health systems, uh, such as uh, New Zealand, or Western European countries like Belgium or Southeast Asian nations like Vietnam have been having severe outbreaks despite all of their efforts. And we see the same now in Honolulu on the island of Oahu in, in Hawaii. We're beginning to see an outbreak over the last three weeks that dwarfs their entire previous four-month experience. Hawaii had uh, this very well controlled with the severe restrictions they put in place from March through the present. And they have had an increase of over 4,000 cases from 1,000 or so to 5,000 between the month of June and the current date. Now, this uptick started just days after the protest in Honolulu in early June. Uh, and, and so many have asked about this. I can't find uh, global changes. There have been some data, but I don't find any research data that supports that all of the protests, especially the peaceful ones where people were trying to consider their neighbors, resulted in this great outbreak. But Hawaii, I think, is an exception. This uptick started just days after these protests. They had almost no deaths and less than 100 cases in that total, in that state totally, in the six weeks prior to the protest starting there on June the 5th, which went through June the 9th. And they doubled their cases just in the following month from 664 to over 1,225. And they have eclipsed that now over the last month from 1,200 cases to over 5,000. Now, their death rate was at zero for the prior eight weeks, and they have doubled their entire four-month pandemic in just the last four weeks. Now, they've only had 40 deaths in their state, but they only had 17 before the protest. And once again, as in Belgium, New Zealand, Vietnam, and other nations that have just crushed their economies, their livelihoods, and their lifestyles, Hawaii is now seeing a similar trend with no end in sight over the next few weeks. To the contrary, something I've reported to you before, an update on Sweden today, shows they are still progressively decreasing their death rates with nearly no deaths in the period that I've charted for you in the countries above. And they have flattened their daily case numbers, and all with a focus on personal responsibility while maintaining a reasonable lifestyle consistent with that personal responsibility and good citizenship. As I've quoted to you previously from international experts, that without treatments or vaccines, flattening the curve just lengthens it. And you don't decrease deaths, you just change the dates. Now on to a more positive note, Mayo Clinic and Tulane University have put out reports over the last few weeks regarding the standard vaccinations 
that so many children get, so many military men get, with very dramatically decreased death rates in these groups. And I'll quote you some parts of these articles. Our MMR, or measles, mumps, rubella, our oral polio vaccine, our pneumococcal vac- vaccines and flu vaccinations can show up to a 50% with minimum of 20% improvement in any age group with the deaths and the complications from COVID decreasing significantly with those numbers due to what is called trained immunity. And an example of this was there were, on the USS Roosevelt, there were 955 sailors who got COVID-19. Only one was hospitalized with no deaths. And we all are aware that these men receive 10 or more vaccinations for all the worldwide illnesses before they go into the service. On that note, we are seeing... So JAMA, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, just two days ago on August the 14th, uh, published an article about parents refusing to immunize children without good medical exemptions, and this was referred to as refusal or avoidance without other acceptable grounds for routine exemptions, such as religious or medical causes. On that note, we're seeing increasing outbreaks from unimmunized patients traveling to foreign countries with unimmunized children with no MMR, polio, or other vaccinations. The DPT was another good one to consider, although its mechanism of action is a bit different from the MMR. We're also seeing that we're having increasing outbreaks due to illegal immigration, which is on the decrease with the current administration, but it was increasing dramatically from 2010 to 2015. We had these diseases eradicated between 1975 and 2000 in the United States, and they're making a comeback. And it's because people will not take what is available to them because of absolute myths about immunizations that there is no medical or scientific proof for. I won't detail those now, but I'm going to deal with those later uh, regarding uh, immunizations and uh, the anti-vaccine movement. Of note regarding immunizations, China has just finished a stage 2 placebo-controlled randomized double-blinded trial on 96 patients with what is called inactivated SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, that's a virus that's treated so that the virus particles are still whole, but the virus can't replicate or duplicate itself. So whatever dose the person is given, it stays at that, and they have a chance to be immunized against it. Many things, such as smallpox and some of these these viruses that are uh, were previously given from the 50s to the, as late as the 80s, were simply inactivated viruses. Now, these are safe and effective so far in China in that very small study, and it's been very short Uh, only going from April 12th to July the 27th. So, so far these short-term results are safe without any significant uh, reactivity and certainly no mortality or significant morbidity, and they do show good antibody response. But we just won't know about any long-term consequences or immunity until we've had more time. On August the 14th, the Journal of the American Medical Association Clinical Update, along the lines of vaccinations, had an article published by a group with concerns about this flu season, and I quote, being a looming threat of concurrent influenza and COVID-19 epidemics is a major concern for public health officials and clinicians. Now, they acknowledge that our current prevention methods are helpful for all respiratory pathogens. If we had used masks and social distancing and other things in the past, we would have had much less flu, but of course we would have had societal uh, depression and, and some breakdown in the economy like we've had with this. But I can tell you also that we had very few upper respiratory illnesses or flu-like illnesses that I saw between April and June because people were doing all the social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, etc. The, the authors go on to state, 
There is a heightened importance for seasonal influenza vaccination to minimize the viral reservoir in the population, and they mean by that less of a burden from all of these respiratory viruses, especially the ones that we can control like influenza. They state, you know, we can't tell the difference from influenza with COVID most of the time without testing, and it certainly will make it a lot easier if we know that a patient, number one, has been immunized against the flu, and if we test them and they don't have influenza, and you understand that the risks for children versus our elders are significantly different with these two viruses. They state that it's very important to limit the factors that might confuse the diagnosis and treatment. And the authors conclude with this statement, the scale of morbidity and mortality will be directly related to the strength of the public health response, which must stress the importance of the two most effective infection prevention tools currently available, widespread implementation of seasonal influenza vaccination and preservation of the NPIs, and that is the non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks, hand washing, and everything that we're doing right now. They say of these NPIs and the vaccinations, until community immunity is achieved through an effective SARS-CoV-2 vaccine and or natural infection. As clinicians and members of local communities, physicians, and other healthcare professionals should promote these important interventions and remain flexible in the approach approach to diagnosis during these times of unprecedented challenges. And I end that quote. Now, I don't agree that these are unprecedented. We've certainly had influenza uh, of different types, and I've had patients with two different types of influenza at the same time. But this is a unique time, I'll say, and their authors are, are, have a very good point in that we don't want anyone to get influenza and coronavirus because we also don't know what happens when influenza and coronavirus invade the same cell. What could happen if they mix their genomes or their mutations? So we want to prevent that. Now, just today, the New England Journal of Medicine published a review uh, regarding something that's near and dear to my heart, which is wellness. And I want to quote, although I don't agree completely with their premise, I think that their premise is valid. We're directly involved in this in our local clinics. And I'll just read what they state in their article. Our preventative system structure has failed during the time of uh, visit-required screenings and wellness. Most of you know that you come to the office to get health screenings or get preventative care or get mammograms scheduled or colonoscopies. And I'll comment that the days of the annual head-to-toe physical with x-rays and EKGs has been gone since the early 1990s, number one, due to the absence of proven benefit, and number two, with significant risk for unnecessary testing, and number three, a lot of unnecessary cost. So we've done away with that and gone to a more focused preventative mode that we call population health. But what we've noticed, and the authors then go on to say, Uh, As we are getting better at prevention with increasing well-documented lists, now up to 25 uh, what we call Cochrane Database or USPST-approved prevention strategies that are helpful and cost-effective, even with that, uh, we are seeing that it's difficult to implement this in the current environment. We see so many, and I've begun to see now that diagnoses of cancers have decreased which implies that over the next five years, we're going to see dramatically increased preventable cancers because people aren't getting them diagnosed now. They're going to grow undetected and then come back later in a worse way, we fear. So, as I reported to you last week, I'm aware of one case in which a patient in our region was afraid to go to the hospital, having stated to their loved ones that they were afraid of going and being exposed to COVID at the ER or the office or hospital, and they died at home with a cardiac event and were found the following day. There's a move on to move from our current office 
uh, environment for testing because of some of the things we're dealing with now and might deal with in the future. Moving this from uh, from the office to the home and from the office and the responsibility of caregivers, placing more responsibility on the patient, but with better information to the patient, greater ease of contact and education from trained staff in virtual visits. So all this is going to be fraught with some difficulties, and many are going to prefer to have face-to-face encounters routinely. And and many physicians will disagree. The authors conclude with a reasonable statement. A large-scale shift to a population-based prevention strategy is long overdue. The COVID-19 pandemic is delaying life-saving preventative screening for millions of patients, and our health system will struggle to catch up. Perhaps this crisis will be the impetus for change. And what I would say, folks, is times, they are a-changing. And with that, I want to end this brief update. I hope that this helps get ready. Those of you parents and educators who are getting ready for school, for those of you who have been struck with fear over this, I hope this gives you a perspective on the very small chance of tragedy with outgoing about your normal life and normal activities, especially healthy ones, as compared to what COVID might do to you. So be wise. Consider the other fellow. Go out and live your life, be active, and get healthy and stay healthy because these are the best strategies to help you live not only well now, but well into the future. I'll see you on Friday. Oh, the times they are a-changing.